0: Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church and we pray that through the preaching of God's word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. So their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And now... Let the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Let us ask the Lord's help now as we look at his word. God, we come before you, Lord, knowing that the natural man does not perceive spiritual things, Lord, and left to our own reasons, left to our own understanding, Lord. We uh, may choose a path that seems right to us, Lord, but in the end leads to death. I pray that you would, by your Spirit, enable us now to perceive life, to understand the words of Jesus, Lord, the words, uh, Lord, of, of life, of um, truth, and that they would, they would fall upon us with ears to hear, with hearts that are soft, that your word would find good soil and bear 10, uh, 50, 100 fold, Lord, in your kingdom among us. And we pray for those that are unbelieving, Lord, that they would hear these warnings of Christ and that they would flee to him, that they would turn from the emptiness of, of this age, Lord, and find rest and true blessing in Jesus Christ this morning. We pray this now in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. A word of woe, not necessarily a passage that I would be drawn to preach if it were not that we were just working through this book by Luke. Um, It's one of the advantages of, of working through the scripture is that we're forced to deal with passages that are difficult, that are hard to hear, that are uncomfortable to hear, And as we consider these words of Jesus, these woes in verse 24, um, couldn't help but think about the false prophets in the history of Israel. We find uh, even in Jeremiah 23 as he describes these false prophets, one of the marks of the false prophet, uh, not only then but today, is that they would say, Peace, peace, when there is no peace that they bring a message of comfort, of ease, that everything is well between you and God, and that there is no danger. And this was one of the things that the prophet, like Jeremiah had to combat constantly was they were proclaiming warnings of God's judgment about to come upon his people, but then the false prophets were proclaiming a message of peace and, and telling the people not to listen to that crazy Jeremiah, that God was in fact pleased with them and that there was nothing to fear. But we see Jesus Christ stand as the true prophet and he holds out truth to the people. And in our day and time, a message like this would maybe seem uh, initially very unloving. Like, that's not very kind, Jesus, to, to say such stern things, to condemn people who are living a certain way. <clears throat> but in fact, it is love. <clears throat> it is love for Jesus to proclaim the truth, to give the warnings as well as the blessings. And we could think of somebody who was in great danger, somebody who was maybe asleep in a burning house. The loving thing to do would be to come to them with the terrifying message that their house is on fire and that they're going to be destroyed if they don't wake up and leave. That's love. It would be cruel to leave them in that place to die. And so Jesus comes with this message of woe, but it is to warn people who are headed for destruction, who have heard this message of peace, peace, when in reality there is not peace between them and God. And these woes uh, aren't recorded by Matthew in, in his record of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and so it's unique that Luke would include this for us, and also very fitting as you see what Luke is doing um, and what ultimately Jesus did when he preached this message. He's using a form of, of Hebrew parallelism where he gives these blessings but then he also gives the, the flip side of those blessings which are the woes. And you can obviously see that with each beatitude that Jesus lists, there is a corresponding woe. And so that's going to be really important as we try to understand What is it that Jesus is rebuking? What is he warning the people against here? What are these woes? How do we discern if we are guilty of such a life? And that the the key is going to be in understanding the blessings which we have worked through over the past weeks, and then that will help us to understand these woes. Um, One quick example of this kind of Parallelism. you can uh, flip back to Isaiah just for a moment, Isaiah 65. You see this used often in the life of Israel, and they would have no doubt recognized what Jesus was doing with the blessing and the curse structure um, we find was very common in the prophets. One example in Isaiah 65:13, uh, we find this kind of structure used of a, a blessing and then a corresponding curse. Isaiah 65, 13 says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. And you see the prophets employing this parallelism that Jesus is using. And what's striking about the way that Jesus teaches here on the Sermon on the Mount is it's exactly the opposite as to what you would expect. You would really, in our day and time, expect the blessings to be the woes And the woes to be the blessings. We would expect the opposite as we consider even our North American mindset and what our culture loves to praise. Um, We love to praise prosperity and we love to praise the confident and those who are, are always laughing and filled with joy. We like to praise those whom the world thinks highly of. You know, you have your Oprah, your Oprah Winfrey's that, that, that are always kind of put on a pedestal as someone who is very praiseworthy. And that's what our culture tends to hold up as the truly blessed life. But Jesus comes and he says, no, it's actually the opposite. But as we saw in the blessings, just to quickly refresh you, this is not merely a uh, physical realities. Jesus is primarily talking about a spiritual condition, which we find very clearly in Matthew as he records, um, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so that's important as we understand the, the blessings, but also the woes. The truly blessed life, the truly blessed kingdom citizen, or those who perceive their spiritual bankruptcy before God, those who understand their spiritual poverty before a holy God, that that they stand condemned. I mean, this is one of the the prayers that we we go to a place like the prison. What do you tell these men? They they know they're condemned on on a practical way, but you hold out to them the spiritual condition of their soul before a holy God, that if you do not Flee to Christ, you will stand on judgment day with nothing. Blessed are you who perceive that. Blessed are you who hunger for the things of God, that you have this yearning in your heart to be like Christ and to know his righteousness lived out in your life. Blessed are you who have a sense of sorrow over the condition of sin. And and even as as we share requests with one another in our time of prayer, uh, there is a sense in which your heart aches at the pain that we often are praying for. There's a sense of sorrow as we consider the full effects of sin and ultimately our own sin before God. And that we understand when we are excluded, made fun of for the sake of Christ, that there is joy in that because we're identifying with Jesus. We're identifying with the prophets of old who will be rewarded greatly. So what are these woes? What does Jesus mean? Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Um, I think just as the blessings are primarily in regards to a spiritual condition, then we must understand the woes in the same way. That they are primarily a a condition of spiritual uh, realities in the life of the unbeliever. So we consider the first one, blessed are you who are poor, and the corresponding woe, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Um, you know this parable, and perhaps there is really an illustration of the Sermon on the Mount, this exact passage that Jesus is, is teaching Luke uh, 16. And it is the rich man in Lazarus in Luke sixteen nineteen. And Jesus really illustrates this reality for us in Luke sixteen nineteen of the blessing and the and the woes. There was a rich man we're told who was clothed with purple and fine linen, who feasted every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man, Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus illustrates that in a very graphic way, but what does it mean to be rich in this age? There is oftentimes a connection to physical wealth, but that is not at the heart of what Jesus is saying, because even as you consider that parable, Abraham was a man who knew tremendous wealth. Abraham was was blessed abundantly with flocks and herds and servants and and all kinds of material wealth. So I think Jesus is really illustrating what is true ultimately in a spiritual sense that even in the book of Proverbs, we find that rich can be in reference to an arrogant, uh, prideful, attitude, this kind of sense within our souls that we have everything we need. We we don't need anything. We don't need a Savior. We don't need God. We are self-sufficient. We we have exactly what we need. And there is no sense in our heart of a spiritual poverty before God. Um, In Jesus' day, it was this Often, this class of people that displayed this kind of heart towards Jesus. And so, there's a warning for us in material wealth that it often does enable us to trust in riches, to trust in horses and chariots rather than in God. And that's the warning. But the riches themselves aren't inherently evil. It's when we begin to set our hearts upon these things, and when we begin to adapt a mind of, of arrogance, of self sufficiency, of independence from God. And Jesus says, To you who see yourselves as rich in this world of having all you need, of being self sufficient, then woe to you, because that is all the blessing you are going to know just like the rich man in the parable who had all kinds of wealth but then when he comes into his everlasting state he knows nothing but torment and his brief season of wealth was all the blessing that he would know. Do you find that your joy rises and falls with your bank account balance? I'm guilty of that. You know, sometimes there's bills come out and things are getting a little tighter and all of a sudden you're upset and you're discontent and you're anxious, but then you get paid and things come up a little bit and, oh, life is good. I'm feeling quite, you know, full of joy. I, kind of, I think I could maybe sing some songs today and we, we find that our joy is directly connected to our material wealth. We got to watch out for that. That's often an indication that that perhaps we are putting our trust in those very things. Of course, we want to be good stewards of what God gives us, and we need to be uh, aware of of potential dangers and trying to plan for the future, but ultimately knowing that God will care for us, God provides for us. Um, If God has given you great wealth, Paul would, would admonish the Christians to use that wealth to store up treasures in heaven. Use it. Leverage that wealth to to be be a blessing to others, to to have it uh, in your hand, in an open hand before God that if you have been given things on this earth, that you hold it before God with an open hand, acknowledging God this is ultimately yours. Help me to steward it. Help me to use it to advance your kingdom. Help me to manage it. But we don't clench our fist around it and Embrace it as our hope. Woe to those, Jesus says, who do such a thing. As one preacher said, you don't see U-Hauls behind hearses, right? You don't see U-Hauls behind hearses. We, We aren't taking any of this stuff with us. And so let us be careful that we don't set our hope upon it. What do you rejoice in? Do you find more joy in the fact that you have maxed out your RSP givings for 2017? Or do you sing like Horatio Spafford as he is on the ship passing over the place where his wife and daughters drowned, and yet he pens the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, and he says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. What is his glorious thought? What is it that that caused his heart to rejoice? He said, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Or as we sang this morning, do you find that you glory in your Redeemer, in one who has paid your debt, in one who has pardoned you before a holy God? Does that bring you more joy than maybe promotion or some unexpected income, or discovering that, you know, your your investment is going to pay great dividends. There's nothing wrong with giving thanks for those things, but does it compare to the joy you find in Christ, in what He has given? Jesus then says, Woe to the full, and this is where it gets maybe more terrifying for us as we start to think about the reality of judgment, the reality of hell. What would it be like? We get glimpses of the wrath of God that will come upon those who have not placed their hope in Him in this world. And it is a terrifying picture. Woe to you who are full now, Jesus says, for you shall be hungry. You could imagine an eternal state of hunger, of starvation of never being satisfied, never being content, never feeling full. That is the wrath of God against those who refuse to hunger and thirst for righteousness, who acknowledge their need of God, of Christ. And again, this is not Jesus saying that it's wrong to enjoy food and to to feel the satisfaction of of being full. Uh, We can give thanks for that as... Paul would say, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do in all things, do it to the glory of God. Um, It is this this sense of fullness. You think of that picture of the rich man and Lazarus that that he had such an abundance of food that he would not even be willing to share with with the man at his gate who was in need, who was without, but this picture of almost the gluttonous Um, overindulgent person who from their own fullness gorges themselves with no regard for God, no regard for the needy around them. Those who live in such a state as to feeling no sense in their soul of a hunger for righteousness, of a hunger for God, of, of needing something from God, but feeling as though they are able to satisfy all of their longings right here with what this world has to offer, then Jesus says, woe to you. You will know nothing but hunger in the life to come. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so important that we even give thanks for our food. Um, I know sometimes praying before a meal can, can seem somewhat, uh, you know, just we just do it out of a habit, but it is important that we keep this in perspective, that we understand our food comes from God. In the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, that, that food can be a great means of glorifying God, of giving thanks to God, but even it can become an expression of our own uh, spiritual gluttony, our own spiritual independence from God, and we must be on guard against that. Um, there is a even, I think, uh, an application for us in fasting. Have you ever fasted intentionally from a meal so as to remind yourself of the greater hunger, which is your spiritual need for God, your spiritual need for His Word, your spiritual need for Christ's righteousness, that you deprive yourself of earthly food in order to set your soul upon true bread and true drink, which is Christ himself. Where do you find confidence in the future that your pantry is overflowing, that your freezer is full and your job is secure, but you may have little regard for God or little awareness of a hunger for God in your soul? Jesus says, Woe to those who feel themselves full now in this life. And then thirdly, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Another terrifying picture of hell. And Jesus actually uses this picture of weeping very regularly in describing the the wrath of God. What will hell be like? It will be a place of unending sorrow and weeping. And Jesus is warning those who in this life laugh and find nothing to be sorrowful over they feel no brokenness in their soul before a holy god that that i have offended him that i have broken his commands that jesus christ hung and died not for his own sin but for the sins of humanity that we are the ones who should have been executed And that should produce in our hearts repentance and sorrow before God. But those who live with a type of indifference to that, Jesus says, you will know nothing but sorrow and weeping in the life to come. The terrifying picture of God's judgment. And again, Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to laugh. It's not wrong to experience joy in our life. But there is a type of laughter that is evil, that is wrong. I think of um, most of the media today, most of the movies, you know, you have these different uh, categories of, of movies, and one is romantic comedy. And you're like, okay, it'd be kind of nice just to watch something that's funny that I could laugh at. And about 90% of these shows, as you turn, if you turn them on and you begin watching the things that they're wanting you to laugh at are things like adultery, fornication, blasphemy, pride, anger, murder. They, they're, they're wanting you to laugh at the very things that stand in opposition to God. We want to celebrate in our day sin. We want to laugh at that which is an offense to God and Jesus says you will have your season of laughter there will be this time of of what seems to be enjoyment even as asaph would perceive the world around him and feel like man they're just having a great time while i'm here struggling and my heart is breaking but then as asaph said when i considered their end it was then that i was sobered to what is really going on they are like the flower of the field that blooms today but tomorrow is reduced to dust. We must keep this in mind, Christians. If if we are to live the truly blessed life, then we understand that sorrow is an appropriate response and that there are things that we do not laugh about. We ought to warn those who have given themselves over to this type of obsession with laughter to the point where we even disregard God himself. We ought to warn them, you need to repent, you need to turn to God because you are going to experience endless weeping when Christ returns. And then lastly, we find Jesus warns, Those who all people speak well of, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And this again, there's a tension here for us, because... Paul would tell the Christians that as far as we're able, we should desire to live at peace with all men. There should be a Christian desire that we not offend our neighbor, that we not offend our boss, that we not offend our fellow students at school. There there should be this desire that we want to be a blessing, we want to be friendly and kind, and we want to be known as generous people. But we also understand that the message that we have been entrusted to share is an offensive message. It is a call that man would repent, would forsake their sin and acknowledge their own guilt before a holy God and that they would acknowledge that they actually can't even fix the problem, that all they can do is fall down at the feet of Christ and ask for his grace and his mercy and that they must actually receive from him. If we are to be cured, we can't cure ourselves, which requires that we be humble before God. And we ask for his forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ and his victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we do nothing to earn this salvation, but we actually only receive. So it's an offensive message, and and that means that there are going to be times when people are upset with you. Maybe just simply walking with integrity in your workplace will offend people because it exposes their dishonesty. Or are you refusing to swear and and use the Lord's name in vain? People all of a sudden have this awareness that they are doing it, and either they will try to stop or they'll start to persecute you because your presence is making them feel guilty. And that has been the case throughout the ages for Christians who stand firm. So Jesus says we should be concerned when people only have good to say about us. Um, in high school, uh, I don't know, Worsley sometimes would, I guess, make their own little uh, awards. I don't know, maybe every school does it to a degree. So I didn't get an award for being very intelligent, unfortunately. Um, the one award I did get in grade 12 was the Friendship Award. And I've thought a lot about that. I think on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. I would say, you know, by God's grace, able to be kind, able to be friendly, um, But on the other hand, I consider that as maybe a potential danger in my own life. Because if I had done nothing, if I had said nothing to offend the unbeliever, then perhaps I am like the one with the the light, keeping it hidden under a bowl. And I've asked that God would give me courage, would give me boldness to share the message of Jesus Christ, knowing that it will offend we should be somewhat disturbed when all we have, when, when all that people say about us is positive and good, and we should step back and say, okay, am I holding up the message? Am I truly living um, a godly life in the world? Am I, am, am I noticeably distinct from the culture in which I live? Or do I look so much like them that they consider me? one of them. And so there's a tension there, but I think as a church, we are moving very rapidly into a day when the church of Jesus Christ is going to become a byword in our culture. We're going to be labeled as arrogant, as narrow-minded. We're going to be called things like homophobic and bigots and haters, and it's not something we desire. We don't want to, to make, you know, national news as the church that hates any type of sin necessarily. I mean, as far as, you know, we don't want to be known as the church that, that hates homosexuality. We'd rather be known as the church that exalts Jesus Christ and, and makes known the gospel. But inevitably, as we hold up the gospel and hold up God's standard Those type of things will be attached to us, and I think in an increasing way in the days ahead, are we okay to define blessedness as Jesus does? And look at very many, a lot of denominations now, a lot of churches, sadly, are very quickly redefining marriage, embracing homosexuality as fine and approved by God, and redefining things so that we might get along in the world. And Jesus would look at such people and say, Woe to you! When all speak well of you in this world, so did they speak of the false prophets. And so, Christian, understand that as you live your life before a watching world, you will experience opposition. You will experience animosity and hatred. And all the more as a culture moves further and further away from the truth of God's word. And so we must prepare ourselves. We must prepare our children. And we must hold on to the truly blessed life as Jesus defines it. So, as we close... Uh, I, encourage you, take time to meditate on these things. Evaluate your life. Ask yourself questions like, do I hunger more for righteousness? Do I desire that the kingdom of God would advance? Or am I more concerned with my retirement plan and how my investments are doing? And my comfort and ease in this world, what, what is it that occupies my mind, my thoughts? Where am I at in this description of Jesus Christ? Don't assume because you confess the name Jesus Christ that you are, in fact, living the blessed life as he would describe it. There are many who will call upon him, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. You're not one of the blessed. You are one of the cursed. So ask yourself, test yourself, what is it that brings sorrow to your heart? Do you perceive your bankruptcy before God so that you cry out to Christ for mercy? Or are you quite content with the things this world has to offer? And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then the gospel does not demand that you clean up your life, that you pay more tithing, that you make it to church more often. The gospel does not demand that you do a form of outward rituals, but it says the gospel demands that you would repent of your sin. You confess your sin before God. You turn from it and you believe in Jesus Christ who has died to pay for our sin, who has risen in victory. And you throw yourself upon Jesus Christ and then as a a display of that faith and and that commitment in your heart, you come to the waters of baptism and you declare to this body, I want to follow Christ. I want to be blessed by him. I want to know his forgiveness. I want to honor him with my life. And um, may that be our prayer this morning as we live out our Christian life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we will close um, with a song. God in heaven, we thank you for your word, Lord, that shines as a lamp in a dark place. God, we thank you for your spirit that you have given, Lord, that you would convict the world of sin, that you would continue to draw us back to Christ when we are wandering off, Lord, when we go after the, 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 the trinkets of Babylon around us, Father, that your spirit convicts us and once again awakens that hunger for true bread, and true drink, which is Christ. Father, I pray for this congregation that you give us great courage to stand firm, knowing that, Lord, unless you are pleased to bring about great revival, we will certainly suffer. We will certainly face persecution in, in many forms, and, and already many are feeling the effects of this. Lord, would you give us strength to stand, and would you give us joy in the midst of knowing, Lord, that there is coming a day when this world is judged when sin is swept away when all things are glorified and christ is exalted and our faith becomes sight lord would you help us to live in light of such a day let me pray this now in jesus name amen well thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at fairview cornerstone baptist church And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.